Sit back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping it sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? Ready? place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league. I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time I'll do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosansky. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. It's time for Keeping It Sports with M3, powered by the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Good afternoon, everyone. Hope everything's going well for you here on this Monday, the 28th and day of March and the final Monday of the month. Hope you all had a great weekend. Hope you're all, you know, staying relatively safe, healthy out there and uh, enjoying, uh, you know, this Kind of weird, kind of crazy month. I, I just said that because what was it last week was the first day of spring, and we've seen such a a uh, bounce between uh, you know the difference between winter and spring. But I'm not here to give you guys a weather report. As I said, it's a sports podcast. Now, a lot to talk about today with two more trades uh, going down in the. NFL, one that negatively affected yours truly. A change happening for the better, if you ask me, for New York sports and hopefully leading to more change in New York City in general. And uh, give you uh, some thoughts on uh, something that's going to be important for the Yankees to figure out over the next 10 days. But of course, it's March and we got to start with March Madness, which, you know, last week I ripped up my bracket because, quite frankly, I was at the point where I didn't care about winning, uh, you know, the March Madness bracket pool anymore. I lost a team in my final four in the first weekend, and lo and behold, I would lose my champion on uh, the first day of the Sweet 16 with uh, Gonzaga going down. So there was really little to no chance of yours truly winning. I, I was at the point where I'm just rooting for, you know, chaos, rooting for entertaining games, and rooting for stories. Now, there's plenty of stories coming out of this weekend with the final four set and we're going to have four blue bloods battling it out in the final four. You know, usually when you get to this point, there's, there's no surprises. There's no Cinderella's left in it. Occasionally you get a George Mason or you get what we had 10 years ago with Butler going to the final four and getting to the finals in back to back years and coming within a shot of uh, defeating Duke for a national championship. But here we have 
four of the best schools uh, in when it pertains to basketball in the entire nation. You know, that I mean, if you want to call North Carolina a Cinderella based on them being an eight seed, fine, but they've played like anything but an eight seed and are a very dangerous eight seed at that. I mean, what's cool about this final four, I, I didn't even realize this until yesterday. The fact that Duke and North Carolina have played 257 times in the history of this great rivalry between all the regular season matchups, meetings in the ACC tournament, and not one time have they played in the NCAA tournament. The closest that we've come to them meeting in the NCAA tournament was back in 91 when they both made the, the Final Four. But this is the first time they they meet in uh, the NCAA tournament, and lo and behold, it takes place in Mike Krzyzewski's final year at Duke. And we've we've already seen one time in which North Carolina has been the spoiler, has attempted to ruin Coach K's final season with uh, what happened in the final game at Cameron Indoor when uh, North Carolina came in, big underdog, and upset Duke, um, and leaving that crowd in tears, knowing that Coach K would go out with a loss in his final home game. Boy, would they love nothing more than to hand Coach K a loss in his final game as a collegiate head coach. Because, now I said it last week, I'll say it again, there is never, at least in my lifetime, I don't think, been more pressure on a group of kids, and we sometimes forget it, but these these guys are still kids, than this Duke team. Because they know, you know, if they lose, it's over. If they lose one more time this year, they send off Coach K in disappointment, in a heartbreaking ending. And the the best overall story left to come out of this tournament would be Coach K raising the national championship for a sixth time, for the first time since 2015, and leaving a winner. Now, the dream that everybody in the sports strives for, wanting their final game, their final moment in the spotlight, to be holding up a championship. And North Carolina has already broken their hearts once. They've broken the hearts of the nation over this last weekend. They'd love nothing more than to do that. And give this Duke team credit. They are very resilient. They're trailing to uh, Texas Tech the other night. And then uh, Bancaro... Hits a couple of threes late. They go on that 7-0 run that kind of 
put uh, Texas Tech in their place and kept uh, Duke alive. Now, Saturday night, they, I don't want to say took no prisoner because it wasn't like they bludgeoned Arkansas by 35 points, but you never really felt uh, like the Razorbacks were in that game in the second half. It bounced between a nine-point lead and as much of a 15-point lead. Never outside the first five, six minutes of uh, this game was Arkansas in a position where you say, oh, one shot here, and they're really putting a scare into the uh, Blue Devils. So now they get a chance to send Coach K out with a smile, but got to go through uh, a rival to do it, the rival to do it. And even if they get through them, it's not going to be an easy task because you have uh, on the other side two of the angsts of my existence when it comes to college basketball. Two teams that no matter which one of them wins on Saturday night, oh, you better damn well believe I'll be rooting against them next Monday night. Whether they're playing Duke or North Carolina won't matter because in the the first matchup this coming Saturday, it's the Villanova Wildcats versus the Kansas Jayhawks. And for a little backstory, in case you're wondering why I dislike the Kansas Jayhawks, it's very simple. Because my brother, for some reason, reasons that have never been quite explained to me, is a big Kansas Jayhawks fan. I don't know whether it's he likes Bill Self, whether... There was a player that played there in particular that he grew to love. Or if it's just with Bill Self's one national championship there, what, 15, 14, 15 years ago, he just became a a shill for them as as soon as uh, they beat Memphis on that night. And a game that I've always said Memphis did more to lose down the stretch than Kansas did anything uh, to actually win that game outside of uh, Mario Chalmers' game-tying three to send it to overtime. And that's a belief I will take to my grave with me. But I almost feel compelled to root for Kansas on Saturday night just to put an end to the agony that is the annoyance of my mom and sisters when it comes to the Villanova Wildcat. And now, I'm not surprised that we're in this situation. I'm not surprised that Villanova is back in the Final Four because I knew it was going to take heroic efforts by either Michigan or Houston to unseed the Wildcats. I mean, As I'm speaking right now, the Houston Cougars just missed another three-point shot. At some point, you think during a timeout, coach be like, hey, guys, can we we stop with the threes? No, we're only down by two here, and you guys keep jacking up threes. They made their first three-pointer early in the first half and then went 0 for 19 uh, 
for the rest of the game. And Villanova was very fortunate to come away with the, the victory in this. But in the end, the, it was a great win for them, but an also painful win as they would lose one of their team leaders, one of their best players, their second leading scorer in Justin Moore. In the final minute of the game, coming down with the uh, popped Achilles on his uh, right leg, and the way he was coming off the court, you knew it was bad. You knew that this wasn't something that he was just going to bounce back from, but stinks that this kid's now going to have to go through this rehab. And it stinks for Villanova because now you're going to have guys that have barely played because they've been going with about a six, seven man rotation in this uh, tournament. You're going to have guys that have barely played, going to have to step up and play major minutes for them, including uh, the likes of uh, Chris Archidiakno, who's playing, what, like three, four minutes a game uh, throughout this tournament. That's going to put a, a lot more pressure on the, the the captain, the leading scorer of this team, Connor uh, Giuseppe, uh, to be a scorer for them, knowing that his uh, uh, running mate, his tag team partner here in Justin Moore, is going to have to watch from the sidelines. And now this also gives my family an excuse for if or when Villanova loses, they could say, oh, Justin Moore was out. Uh, that's why we lost. And no, I'm not in the excuse making business. Hell, I'm going to be rooting like hell for Villanova to lose. But the last thing in the world I wanted to see is this kid uh, go down with an injury. I want them to get beat at mostly full strength. And now my family has that excuse. But it should be, either way, it should be an exciting Final Four between, like I said, four blue bloods in the sport. But with that, it also comes with heartbreak. And I know it was going to take, you know, a David overcoming Goliath-like performance yesterday. But the incredible run of probably the greatest Cinderella team in NCAA tournament history came to an end. A screeching halt late yesterday when St. Peter's got blown out by North Carolina. Listen, what they've done just to get to this point was impressive. Being one of the few 15 seeds to win a game in the tournament when they upset Kentucky, beating them in overtime. Then coming back uh, less than 48 hours later and upsetting Murray State to become only the second 15 seed uh, to reach the Sweet 16 following up off Florida Gulf Coast's uh, impressive performance from about 10 years ago. And from there, you thought, oh, anything they do after that, it's just extra credit. And they gave us more. Beating Purdue, and a, a Purdue team that some thought, oh, maybe this is finally the Purdue team that can put it all together and get to a Final Four, win a national championship. 
you know, they even with the lack of size that they had going up against Purdue and being unable to contain Edie anytime he touched the, the ball, they stayed strong. They stayed tough. They continued to fight and survived to see another day. Just yesterday was one of those days where shots were not falling for them. It took them five minutes to score in this game. But from there, they were trailing by as much as 20 at points in the first half. Never got this within a point in the second half where you thought, maybe there's a chance, maybe there's a shot that they could make a comeback here. And the, you know the problem is, they don't have a lot of size on this team. The you know the biggest guy they're running out there is about six foot eight, and when you're getting out re, almost getting out rebounded uh, by one player on the, the opposition, as uh, uh, Armando Bacton uh, was uh, doing, it was uh, you know just a tall task to ask for for them, but. It doesn't take, even though they got blown out, and that's the last thing I wanted to see for them when it comes to their run coming to an end, it doesn't take away from what they've done. It does not take away from what an incredible story that they were. You have a school that made the Elite Eight, that the team they beat to get here, Purdue, has more faculty then St. Peter's has students. St. Peter's, for the rest of that school's time, that this basketball team is going to be viewed as legends on campus there. there there's going to be a night, you know, 10, 15 years from now, they bring the players back from this team and honor them, honor the run that they went on. And it gave... It galvanized the state of New Jersey because guarantee, you know, at least 80%, probably more of the people that were watching weren't watching at the beginning of the tournament. Hell, probably didn't even know that St. Peter's University existed. And when they heard the name, probably didn't even realize that it was in the state of New Jersey. But guys, you gave us something to cheer for. You gave us something to be excited for, for a week and a half. So while yesterday wasn't your day, don't hang your, your heads in shame. You did it, the state of New Jersey very proud. Now it stinks that in the next couple of days, in all likelihood, uh, uh, you're going to lose your coach, uh, Shaheen uh, Holloway to Seton Hall for him becoming their new head coach. But you guys gave him memories to last a lifetime. You gave yourselves memories that you could tell your children and grandkids someday. So while yesterday sucked, don't hang your heads for too long. You did your school and you did your state very proud and gave us a run that we will never, ever forget. All right, a lot left I want to talk about today. Give some thoughts on some NFL trades that went down in the last week. Uh, Changes for Kyrie Irving and 
both players on the Mets and Yankees availability um, coming up, as well as you know, talk about a potential contract extension for Yankee star Aaron Judge. So a lot to get to over the next oh, about 40 minutes, 45 minutes or so here. Glad you guys uh, could uh, join me. And as always, please sit back, relax, help put your feet up if you feel like it, and continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see, at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Now, believe it or not, there's still action taking place in the, the NFL's offseason. I know it, people thought things were starting to calm down after, you know, what was a, a two-week span of just crazy moves taking place in the NFL. Quarterbacks uh, changing locations such as Russell Wilson, Tom Brady coming out of retirement, uh, trades involving uh, wide receivers such as Devontae Adams. But uh, the NFL, as we've seen, don't, never likes to lose the uh, spotlight. It's like they've got a sixth sense when they realize that, uh-oh, the NBA is getting down to the nitty-gritty in their season. Or college basketball's got a lot of uh, stories. We've got to have something to take the headlines back. And they did that. Now, one that went under the radar was the Saints re-signing uh, James Winston for two years, $28 million. And listen, for Saints fans, it's going to feel like a consolation prize based on the fact that they weren't able to uh, lock down the services of uh, Deshaun Watson. And you know, say what you want about Jameis. He's kind of a goofy uh, guy, has not always been the most consistent quarterback in the world, but he's going to be available for you on opening day, unlike um, Deshaun Watson in all likelihood. And, you know, Jameis played well for uh, the Saints last year before he tore his ACL. The, you know, the Saints started off 5-2, and, and while 
he wasn't the leading reason behind that. I thought their defense played a big factor in it, um, more so than offensively. Now, you look at the numbers he put up through seven games, a little under 1,200 yards passing, about 60% completion percentage, 14 touchdowns, compared to only three interceptions, which is a big improvement from where we've seen Jameis Winston. Now, he proved to be a solid quarterback option for the New Orleans Saints and was better than anything that they had still left on that roster. Plus, you know, you were going to play second fiddle in that division uh, to the Buccaneers once Brady came back anyway. But, you know, the, this is better than the alternatives and better than, you know, you look at what Carolina and Atlanta are now going to be dealing with at the quarterback position. Carolina doesn't seem like they know what they want to do at, at quarterback. And Atlanta is essentially going into a full-on rebuild mode now with the fact that they traded Matt Ryan last week to the Colts for a third-round draft pick. And now it's fair to wonder if you're a Falcons fan. Should you have drafted a quarterback uh, last year instead of uh, taking Kyle Pitts? Listen, Kyle Pitts... This is nothing against him. The kid's going to be a stud in this league. But the fact that you move on from Matt Ryan a year after it was such a quarterback-rich draft, a draft that people were very high on the crop of quarterback talent that was available there, and now do it at a time where this quarterback draft class is kind of lackluster, leaves a lot to be desired, leaves Atlanta in a position where, you know, they're going to be competing for the top overall pick in next year's draft where you hope that there's better options available. But for the Colts, they get another veteran quarterback for the second time in three years, are taking a chance on a veteran quarterback who has competed at an MVP level in Matt Ryan, has won an MVP, but has not won the big one. And a lot of people will say, oh, maybe Matt Ryan is too late in his career to do so, but he's joining a team that had a Breakout year last year from Michael Pittman had the best running back in the league in Jonathan Taylor. And just, you know, not to say that the Colts are going to win the Super Bowl next year, but this move definitely puts them in the driver's seat in that AFC South. Now, you can't rule out the Tennessee Titans. They deserve uh, our respect. But Matt Ryan, it's not like he's played awful the last couple of years and compare what he's done to the last two Super Bowl champions in the fact that they had quarterbacks that changed locations. Now you look at Matt Ryan's numbers last year, almost 4,000 yards passing 67% completion percentage, 
20 touchdowns and 12 interceptions. The Falcons went 7-10. and 10. You know, the year before, he threw for just under 4,600 yards, 65% completion, 26 touchdowns, 11 interceptions, but the Falcons went 4-12. and 12. Then look at, you know, the, the last three years for Tom Brady. Tom Brady, who people thought, oh, he was done when he was leaving uh, New England because he only threw for 4,000 yards and was barely 60% completion percentage, and they lost in the playoffs in a year when they went 12-4. and Next two years, he threw for over 46,000 yards, threw for over 5,000 yards last year, had 40 touchdowns in each season, and the the Buccaneers went a combined 24-9, and and won the Super Bowl in the 2020-2021 season. Then look at Matthew Stafford, who people thought of as a quarterback that put up big numbers in a little pond known as Detroit. Well, you saw what happened when he went from a run-of-the-mug franchise to a franchise that knows what the hell they're doing, took shots, uh, went for broke, and won a championship. And he played fantastic uh, last year. Was a big part of the Rams going 12-5 and and winning that Super Bowl. Wasn't just a passenger along the way. And he's received a lot of the same criticism over the years that Matt Ryan had, but didn't have an MVP to his credit. So, no, the Colts are taking a chance on a guy that's, what, 37, 38 years old, going to be entering his 15th year in uh, the NFL. But he's put up better numbers the last few years than what you got out of Carson Wentz last year. And it worked for them two years ago when uh, they uh, had Phillip Rivers So why not take this shot? It's worth a try. And it was only a third-round pick to do so. Now, that wasn't the only trade that went down in this last week. And the other trade really has had me not scratching my head, but just annoyed since it went down. That, of course, being the Miami Dolphins acquiring Tyreek Hill, who faced an impasse in contract extension talks with the Chiefs. So the Chiefs realized one year left, We since we're not going to come to a deal with them, better trade him and get something for him. Plus, they've added to their wide receiver core, added two wide receivers for the price tag that they probably would have had to spent on Tyreek Hill in adding Marquez Valdez-Scandling and adding Juju Smith-Schuster. So they trade Tyreek Hill to the Miami Dolphins for, and get the Dolphins' first and second round picks of this year, two fourth round picks, and a 2023 sixth round draft pick. 
And along with that, Tyreek Hill signs a four-year, $120 million contract extension with the Dolphins for $72.2 million guaranteed. You know that there was another team involved in the mix here. It came down to two teams to trade for Tyreek Hill. And of course, that other team was my New York Jets, who, quite frankly, today we feel as Jet fans, used and abused by Tyreek Hill and his agent, Drew Rosenhaus. Because, you know, the reports are out there. When when I first heard about this last Wednesday, I'm, I'm at work, it's around 11.30, and I start seeing the reports by Adam Schefter that it's down to the Jets and the Dolphins to get Hill. I'll admit it, I started to dream a little bit. I started to think, wow, you had Tyreek Hill here, get have him as the number one wide receiver, push Corey Davis to be in your number two, and then you got Moore and Berrios as your slot guys. And, you know, you have Usama uh, or uh, CJ uh, Usama as your uh, tight end. Pretty good set of weapons there to have for Zach Wilson. And within an hour, that dream was broken, was no more a reality for the Jets. Who, no, quite frankly, the Jets were used by Hill and Rosenhaus to get to the Dolphins. All along, he, he wanted to go to Miami because he's from the area. And remember, Florida has no state income tax. So the Jets would have had to throw at him something insane in the ways of contract talks. And that's the only way they were going to agree to trade for help. They were not going to trade for him with the one year left on his deal, risking that he walk at the end of next year for absolutely nothing. What makes today feel even worse is knowing what the deal on the table was uh, to get Hill. The Chiefs would have sent Hill to New York without getting either of the Jets' two first-round draft picks. So you could have gotten Tyreek Hill and still kept the fourth and the tenth pick Use those to improve the defense or the offensive line. And then we're really heading places if uh, you're a Jet fan. Then you're just saying it's all there for Zach Wilson to succeed. And he still remains the most important piece of the puzzle. Because the Jets, if he doesn't develop into the quarterback that we all hope and think he can become, they're going to go nowhere and they'll be once again looking to draft the quarterback in two years, a a continued process, you know, rinse, repeat when it comes to the Jets and uh, quarterbacks. But it, it just got me thinking that, you know, at some point the Jets can no longer just be one of these teams that's constantly in rebuild mode. At some point they have to make that trade where it changes the mindset 
the philosophy and the mentality of not just the players on the roster, not just the people in the organization, but the fan base. Give us that trade where it's like, uh-oh, this is a franchise turning around trade. And it, don't, like when the Bills took that next leap and went from a rebuild team to a contending team to now a Super Bowl caliber team when they traded for Stefan Diggs. Or the Colts when they were willing to give up a first round draft pick to get DeForest Buckner from the 49ers. Or the, the Bears, even though it didn't result in a lot of winning, they gave up a bevy of draft picks to go get uh, Khalil Mack from the Raiders. One of those kind of trades, one of those trades were, you know, now it becomes about winning and now Jet fans can have a better thought process, a better mindset heading into a season rather than constantly thinking about the following year's draft. I, you hope that that moment comes eventually for the Jets, but you know, a day like last Wednesday just leaves the fans, including fans like yours truly, fans that are season ticket holders, continues leaving us in a mindset wondering, why can't we have nice things? All right, going to take another break here, come back and talk about a change that was made for New York athletes last week. Also got to give some thoughts on the Yankees a little bit later on. So plenty left to come. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Quick reminder of all the places that you can find Keeping It Sports with M3 on social media. Find me on Twitter at m 3 Rosansky. That's my personal account. Uh, the the account I've got set up for the podcast is at Keeping It Sports. Also find us on Instagram at Keeping underscore it underscore sports underscore 
with underscore M3, as well as my personal Instagram account at M3 underscore four underscore life. Both of those on Instagram and on Facebook, of course, facebook.com slash keeping it sports with M3. Now, I mentioned before a big change coming for New York sports, and quite frankly, this is long overdue. You know, it's a rule that was stupid to begin with, even even for as much as when it comes to this pandemic, I'm a, a big believer in getting vaccinated. I myself am vaccinated, got boosted. My entire family is uh, vaccinated and boosted. I could still understand the apprehension of certain people out there, whether you know, you're a woman and you've had miscarriages or you just gave birth to a child and you're wondering how that would affect uh, the breastfeeding for the child or if you're someone that's dealt with blood clots, or you're someone like Anthony Rizzo, who I don't know if he's been vaccinated yet or decided to go there. It, you know, and you're a cancer survivor, and you're worried that that could have some kind of negative adaptation to your body. Completely understand those reasons. No, it's, it's those people that are the my body, my choice, who are more so being that guy, kind of like Kyrie Irving, that I don't quite understand. But all along, I was saying it's ridiculous that Kyrie Irving can't play in home games at the Barclays Center, but visiting players who are unvaccinated can't. It gives an unfair disadvantage to the Brooklyn Nets, especially when they're already dealing with a disadvantage of having to go up to Toronto and Kyrie can't play in the two games up there. So there were 43 possible games that Kyrie Irving was not eligible to play in for the Nets. but And then there, there was also the thought, uh-oh, there's probably some players on the Mets and Yankees that are unvaccinated. Will they be able to play come opening day? And, you know, all along, you kept hearing from both organizations, oh, it'll be fine. Things will sort themselves out. Even as New York City Mayor Eric Adams um, was uh, saying uh, last week that, Things like baseball, uh, basketball, businesses of all those things, they'll have to wait until that lair comes. They'll have to wait their turn in line, that lair being the rollback of the private employer's mandate. Well, he finally made an update to that on Thursday by uh, saying that unvaccinated athletes and performers can now perform in New York City. Saying, quote, this is about putting New York athletes on a level playing field. We were 
treating our performers differently because they live and play in New York City. So now, immediately, Kyrie Irving can play in games at the Barclays Center and the Yankees and Mets, who are unvaccinated, can play on opening day. And now, of course, this leads to a lot of controversy, a lot of chaos in New York City because it's just a rollback in a mandate for athletes and performers um, that are receiving this exemption for uh, vaccination policy, but not for essential workers such as teachers, police officers, fire uh, fighters, no, even stadium workers um, are still af- affected uh, by this. And let's face it, this was, was all about political gains and money here because members of the Mets organization, in particular Steve Cohen, were big financial backers of Eric Adams during his campaign trail. Hell, Randy Levine, uh, who worked in uh, politics back in the 90s before coming to the Yankees to be their team president, still had a lot of connections uh, with City Hall and was lobbying with them uh, about uh, the economic impact uh, in neighborhoods surrounding Yankee Stadium and City Field. So money spoke here in helping make this decision. It wasn't just like, oh, the light bulb went on in Eric Adams' head and made him realize how stupid it is that that our athletes can't perform in New York City, but visiting athletes can. I mean, it was a ridiculous thing to put in place in the first place, and now it's even things out. Now, I, I do feel bad for those who... I think it's about 1,400 people who lost their jobs because of this mandate. You know, people that I talked about in the, those uh, essential working uh, uh, lines, such as teachers, policemen, uh, medical personnel, firefighters. Those people, unfortunately, you know, the mandate still hangs over the head of those lines of work and they can't get their jobs back because the, those those jobs have been filled. And I said earlier, I feel bad for those who are not taking the vaccine for you know personal reasons you know, of concern. No, but those who are not taking it just because they want to be that guy or still living by this idiotic philosophy that, oh, there's some kind of computer chip in there that's going to have you controlled by the government or it's going to have you turn into like a Pokemon, have you grow body parts that weren't there before. Those people, quite frankly, no sympathy whatsoever. Now with these Updates being made on Wednesday came at a interesting time because Wednesday was also Kyrie Irving's 30th birthday. So what a 30th birthday present for him, something that had to make him happy. But quite frankly, the last week has not made 
things happy for any Brooklyn Nets fans as the Nets have gone two and two in that span and fallen to ninth in the Eastern Conference. Will it be losing on Wednesday, which had me quite frankly aggravated? I went into that game thinking, all right, Kyrie's going to be able to start playing home games now. This gives the team, galvanizes the team, gives them a little extra motivation. Plus, the Grizzlies are going to be without John Morant for the next couple weeks. No excuses. But what I didn't take into account was that the likes of Desmond Bain and uh, DeAnthony Melton were going to go insane from behind the three-point arc. And the fact that even without Curry, Drogic, and Aldridge unavailable, the Nets would put forth a great effort. Correct that. Durant and Irving would put forth a great effort combined for 78 points and not get much of anything else from any of their supporting cast. You know, I started to feel a little bit better on Saturday because, you know, they go into Miami and blow out the Miami Heat. The Heat who are dealing with their own problems right now, seemingly getting into fights and arguments every night on the bench. You know, someone differently uh, is having to be backed away from Udonis Haslam uh, shouting in their face. Recently, excuse me, it's been uh, Jimmy Butler getting most of uh, that berating. And the Nets just having a wire-to-wire victory down there in South Beach, so much so that the starters didn't have to play in the fourth quarter, thinking, all right, come back home tomorrow night. Kyrie can finally play in home games. No, the guys get a little rest here, not having to play uh, the fourth quarter of this game. And then you have last night's you know, lackluster showing where you know, Durant's missing uh, um, midway uh, jumpers that he usually makes. Kyrie Irving couldn't buy a shot for most of the night. And uh, you know, LaMelo Ball and company just go insane from behind the three-point arc and win this season series, which is important because you know these two teams have the same record now. They could finish in a tie. And with the Hornets winning the season series, that gives them the advantage in the standings where right now you sit and you, in the race from 6 to 10. The Raptors have jumped over the Cavaliers and have moved into a secure playoff spot for the moment. And as we would sit here right now in the the play-in tournament, the Cavaliers would play the Hornets for the seventh seed. The Nets would play the Hawks with the winner of that game playing the loser of Hornets-Cavaliers. Now, the important thing here is because the Nets are in all likelihood going to play in this play-in. Even if they go undefeated, I don't think someone's going to lose enough for them to get up to six. The important thing here is that the Nets do not play the Toronto Raptors in this scenario. Or have to go to Toronto. Because they still have mandates that wouldn't allow Kyrie Irving to play up there. 
They need to make sure that Irving is available to play for them. But now you've put yourself in a spot where you have to win two games in a row just to get into the play-in scenario. And it's not even a lock that they'd host one of those games because Atlanta, it's just a game and a half back of them for the ninth spot in the East. And now people talk about how, oh, if the Nets get in the postseason, that's a team you don't want to play. Well, they're going to have to go through hell if they make the playoffs one way or another, when you look at the top three seeds in the Eastern Conference. I'm, I'm going to take the Sixers out of the mix for the second a second because let me see James Harden play big time in this postseason because he'll n- never have he's never had more pressure on him to perform. Uh, well in the playoffs, more so than he will have this year. But if the Nets do reach the playoffs, they're going to have to play one of three teams in the first round. The Bucks, who are back to full health, full strength, and the Bucks just knocked them off in the postseason last year. The Heat, who even though they're going through a losing streak right now, a little bit of a lull in their season, they're a team, they're kind of weird, you know, in the way that they go, because they go so hot and cold, you could see them getting back to the NBA Finals, but you could also see them getting knocked off by the Brooklyn Nets in the first round, especially if they play like as much crap as they have in the last week. And then there's the daunting task of possibly plays playing the Boston Celtics who have been either them or the Suns have been the best team in the league um, since the change in the calendar. They've won six in a row, nine out of 10 are winning by a um, average margin of 21 points in that time. And Jason Tatum in this last month has taken his game to a whole nother level that is not just, you know, MVP of the regular season level. We're talking MVP of the finals level and has knocked off any of that talk that him and Jalen Brown uh, can't play together. So even though last week from an off-the-court standpoint was good news for the Nets, it comes at a time where, no, they're not playing up to their potential and have put themselves in a very, very difficult spot heading down the final stretch of the season. Well, they only leave New York City one more time for a game this Saturday against the Hawks. Now, and they should be favored in at least no seven, six of the seven games they have left on schedule. They're going to have a very difficult time if they hope to reach their ultimate destination of getting to an NBA Finals. First, the the task of possibly playing two games in the play-in scenario and then having to go through a gauntlet of the Eastern Conference best just to reach 
that goal that Durant and Irving are striving so much for. All right, going to take one last break, come back and finish up with some thoughts on the Aaron Judge situation. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. A few more minutes to go here, but let's uh, finish up this week's uh, Keeping It Sports with M3 podcast. We're, you know, we're about 10 days away from the start of baseball's regular season it's around this time every year they announce any rules changes that there's going to be put in place for the start of a season and the the first one that they announced was no surprise because you figured with how spring training was delayed and the fact that they're not pushing back the start of the season any more so than they already have. They're going to play 162 games starting on April 7th. You looked at it and you said, you know, three and a half weeks of spring training games is not long enough for the starting pitchers to get stretched out. Hell, there's still, some pitchers are still even in spring training mode until like three weeks into the season before you start seeing guys uh, really creep past the 100-pitch mark and going uh, that deep into uh, games. So the MLB and the PA agreed to expand the rosters in from 26 to 28 players until May 1st, where they can have an unlimited number of pitchers on the team. Typically, you're only allowed 13 pitchers on a 26-man roster. But in this case, I think you're going to see teams go with as many as 16 pitchers on their roster. You know, have some of their minor league pitcher, starting pitchers make the team and do you know, kind of piggyback starts for the first several weeks uh, as they get their main guys stretched out or even possibly go with six-man rotations for the first couple of weeks of the season. It won't be until May 2nd that rosters have to return to 26 players and only 13 pitchers on uh, the uh, pitching staff. And uh, doubleheaders 
as we know, there's going to be a lot of them with all the games they got to make up. They're going to be nine innings. The problem here is uh, we're going to get that rule that we all hated over the last two years still put in place this year, the ghost runner at second base, where magically you start at sec- extra innings and each half inning there's a base runner on second who reached without even getting a hit or a walk. I mean, it's a dumb rule. It's ridiculous. I know all baseball fans can't stand it. And a lot of people have said, if you're going to have this, at least push it deeper into extra innings. But with the fact that it's a short spring training and injuries are going to be at a risk more so this year than any other year prior, they don't want as many, you know, 16, 17, 8, 18 inning games for these players to have to potentially play through. So, you know, hopefully it's just for this year and next year we get rid of it. The the one that I'm interested in, the rule that they've put in place when it pertains to the designated hitter and starting pitchers. Because there were a few starting pitchers that still wanted to hit, still liked the idea of hitting. But as we know now, the National League has finally joined the 21st century and adopted the designated hitter. So they've added a rule that if the starting pitcher is also your DH in the game, that when the starting pitcher leaves the game, they can still remain in the game as a designated hitter. Essentially, this is the Shohei Otani rule. And they did this because last year there was a game. I I remember it so clearly. I think it was late July, early August, where the Angels came into Yankee Stadium. Otani was the starting pitcher. But the Angels said, to hell with the DH. We're going to keep him in the lineup as well. He led off for them. I don't think he did anything in the top half of the inning. But in the bottom half of the inning, when he came out as a starting pitcher, got rocked around, left with two outs in the inning, giving up seven runs. And they lost him for the game as well because they had the pitcher's spot in there instead of him being a DH and had to keep double switching through the rest of the night and lost their best player at that point. Now they still came back and won because of the the Yankee bullpen collapsing, but were unable to keep Otani in the game because he left the game as a starter. Now this rule provides them the opportunity that even if he gets rocked around as a pitcher. He can still re- remain in the game and impact them as a bat, as their designated hitter. A lot of people have said that maybe this leads to more two-way players in the sport, but I doubt that. Hell, I still believe that at some point the Angels are going to have to make a decision on Otani because you, you really believe that any big-time starter is going to join that team. You know, a guy like the level of what we saw this past year with uh, 
Max Scherzer available in free agency, or if Jacob DeGrom goes free agency next year and considers the Angels as a possible destination. You think that they're going to want to join a team where their entire rotation is built around having one guy pitch one day out of the week and having everyone else's routine affected by that? No. At some point, you either got to have this guy start once every five days, take off from hitting that day, and then have him DH the days in between. And if he can't physically do that, make a decision. Either he's a a great bat for you that you occasionally have played the outfield, or he's a starting pitcher because you're never going to win with continuing to have this gimmick. And that's clearly what it is. It's a gimmick. They have them pitch on Sundays and then DH every day in between that. And as much of a show as he is, pun unintended, to watch, you know, the last time I checked, teams win championships off starting pitching. And how are you going to get anywhere if you're what you believe is your best starting pitcher is making all of about 21 to 22 starts for you in a given year. Now, one thing I'm going to be very much focused on for these next 10 days is whether or not the Yankees come to a agreement which with Aaron Judge on a contract extension. Now, they're entering an arbit they're possibly entering an arbitration process. They agreed to terms with all of their arbitration eligible players except for Aaron Judge. And it's weird this year the arbitration uh, meetings are going to take place during a season. So players aren't even going to know for sure what their salary is going into the year if you're in the, that case. But Aaron Judge is set to be a free agent at the end of this year. And the question becomes, will the Yankees come to terms on an extension with him before the season, or are they just going to play things out? Because he has said that he doesn't want to uh, discuss this during the season. The Yankees have said uh, it's either going to be pen to paper or we go to free agency, which... Now, all that talk I consider to be just nonsense. I mean, if they if they come to a deal on May 15th, they'll both willingly sign that deal. But Judge has been one of the best players in the sport, has been a you know, top 10 player in the sport, has been a great player for the Yankees, been a, a model citizen. Uh, I don't think there's really anything outside of how cryptic he's been about his vaccination status over the last two weeks. I don't think there's been anything where you really look at Aaron Judge and say, oh, that's you know, kind of questionable. The The only issue you have with Judge is for prior to last year where he played 148 games and probably would have played more if not for testing positive for COVID in mid-July, is he had a three-year stretch there where he didn't play a lot. He missed 46 games in 2018 due to a fracture in his right wrist. Missed 55 games the next year due to an oblique strain. And then in the pandemic-shortened season of 2020, 
he only played 28 games due to right calf strains. So he's had, you know, some weird injuries here to uh, deal with. Nothing that you're overly concerned with long-term, but things that you start to wonder, is he injury prone? And is that going to be a big factor in negotiations for a guy that, let's face it, we've never seen something like Aaron Judge. A guy that's six foot eight, has this kind of power, has been this great of a player, and built in the fashion he is. I mean, Dave Winfield was a tall guy, but he wasn't necessarily a big, thick, muscly guy like Judge is. And we know when Judge makes contact with the ball, he can hit it as far as anyone. We know he plays great defense in right field, but you know that the back half of that contract, he's probably going to have to become a designated hitter. So if you're the Yankees, what do you offer him? He, you know, Their initial offer is probably going to be five years. He'll probably look for seven. The question there becomes, can they meet in the middle on six years and do something that is not going to, and I shouldn't say the word cripple financially because it's the Yankees, even for as, uh, you know, conscious as they've been the, the last couple of years when it comes to salaries, they still have as much money as anyone in this sport. But something that you're not grossly regretting in the back half of that deal, even when he's most likely a designated hitter at that point. Can you agree to a deal that is six years for anywhere between, oh, let's say 210 and $230 million, now somewhere in that range, six to seven years for anywhere between 200 and $230 million. I mean, I'm not one to count anyone's money, but on both sides, that seems very fair. It would put Judge in that stratosphere of being one of the top five of the 10 players um, as far as average annual salary in baseball, but also for the Yankees, wouldn't completely cripple them at a time where you're hoping, and the Yankees are, this is where the Yankees are taking a big risk because they're banking on a lot of these young kids. These kids we continue to talk about, Anthony Volpe, uh, as well Peraza, uh, Jason Dominguez, maybe Trey Sweeney. All these kids, and that's not even counting any young pitchers that could come up all be effective big leaguers and be that next generation of talent to surround Aaron Judge, Garrett Cole, Giancarlo Stanton as they're all in the back half of their contracts when you would think at least that they're not going to be as effective anymore. So it's going to be interesting. I hope that this doesn't get messy. I hope that this is something that the Yankees and Judge can come to terms with pretty fast so that we're not talking about this, not concerned about this 
all season long because, like I said, he's been a great player for them. He's been, you know, the face of the franchise for the last five years. Probably the most popular player on the team. Be a shame if he does and spend, you know, the rest of his career in pinstripes as the face of this franchise. And that, my friends, was Keeping It Sports with M3 from Monday, March 28th, 2022. Everyone have a great night. Have a great week. Stay safe. Stay healthy. And I'll talk to you guys again same time next week. Peace. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you. Thank you for all the fun. Thank you. Hey, shut up, will ya? I don't want to see you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to smell you. Now leave. I'll be back.